hello there. I didn't see you. I was just skinning my latest trophy, a particularly fine white rhinoceros. Is that not the largest horn you've ever seen? But I digress. You've stumbled upon me recording Penny Red, the wildly popular Victorian big game hunting podcast. So welcome. You can find PDFs of my Endangered Animals I Have Shot book at endangeredanimalsihaveshot.com for just $6.99, as well as other documents pertaining to the field dressing and mounting of the deadliest, rarest, and often most delicious wild animals on the planet. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy a delicious white rhino steak as you feast your ears upon the wonderful Jennifer Steen from The Genisodes as she recounts in gruesome detail her successful stalking and throttling of a man-eating Bengali tiger with her bare hands. And don't forget to go to endangeredanimalsihaveshot.com. Welcome to episode 20 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast, as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. This week, inside the Roleplayer Studio, I have Jen of the Genisodes, podcaster extraordinaire. You can Hello. check out her. Oh, hi. Hello. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, you've, you've uh, you turned up much more quickly than I thought you would. <laughs> you can check out her work at thegenocides.com. So without further ado, hello, I've already done that. Damn, okay. Uh, hi, Jen. How's it going? I am good. Great. Uh, for those that are not familiar with your um, work on the genocides and, and elsewhere, um, I've got a few questions to start with just to set up your uh, credentials, your street credibility, if you will. And uh, from there, we'll get on to the questions proper for the main part of the uh, the interview. So uh, how long have you been a role player? I've been role playing for about like four or five years now. And what uh, got you started and what did you play first? I first started playing um, with a bunch of my friends. We were doing like an online campaign through Play by Posts. So we were playing three or three point five, I think. Right. And and how did you get started in that? Like, uh, it's not the sort of thing you would necessarily just suddenly start doing. Did you have somebody else in your life that sort of put you on the path to role playing, or did you stumble across it one day? Um, well, it was the, my group of friends. Um, I actually started dating one of the guys, and. He was like, I'm running this game online and, and you can do whatever. And I'm like, do I get to throw magic spells? Because I knew what Dungeons and Dragons was. Right. Uh, I just never got to play. My dad used to play it with my brother when he was little. So I wasn't like, it, it wasn't something completely out of the realm of uh, new stuff. Right. So, <laughs> and, and so was it a case of, because um, a number of people in previous episodes have, have brought this up, um, that they, as a girl, they experience the role-playing is not for girls, you can't play, or yes, you can play, okay, um, your character does this and this, and I'm afraid you're dead, so you're all finished. No, not really. I mean, I didn't, I didn't have that experience, because it was about, with, a peop- with friends, and they had been playing, um, like all the guys who were playing in this game had been playing since they were in high school. They knew each other, and so they were very welcoming. They're like, oh, we have another player? Like, this is great. So Right. And like, we'll help you along. And I'm like, I don't really know what I'm doing. They're like, oh, well, we'll, t- we'll take care of the numbers. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't what do you want to do? Don't pretty about numbers and math. You just yeah. <laughs> play along. Yeah, they're like, we'll teach you as you go along. Because it was all play-by-post. So sure. a lot of the stuff happened in the background. Sure. 
Um, it wasn't until we actually played a couple games in person where I started to pick up all the other stuff, like what AC actually meant. So all I was doing in the game, I was like, I punch him with my sword or I throw this spell and do I want to do this. And they're like, okay, we can do that. <laughs> sure. Oh, that's good. Sounds like you had a supportive introduction. I was sort of thinking about prior to that. You mentioned that your father and your, your brother played. And being uh, having a sibling myself, I know that... Uh, Basically, anything that he wanted to do, I would automatically try to stop him doing that and, and prevent him from having any fun at all. So I was wondering if you experienced the same thing with your brother and or his friends. Um, it was it was my dad. Well, my parents used to play when when they were younger before they had us. And they used to say that when I was a baby, they would take us or take me with them to, to game night. And they'd put all the babies in a playpen and they'd go play Dungeons and Dragons for hours. Nice. nice. So you're a second generation role player. Yes. Nice. So... Uh, what do you play now? I play all sorts of stuff. I love trying out all sorts of games. Um, I mean, through the podcast, I learn about so many new things right. that I can't keep up with everything. But oh, well, I do have a couple of favorites that I think if I could play at any time, like I, I would drop whatever I'm doing and play them. Right. Um, so it's like Burning Wheel. Like I would always play Burning Wheel. Someone brought that up. Right. Um, Dogs in the Vineyard. Sure. Um, so that's always a fun one. Right. And do you play, have you played Burning Empires and or Mouse Guard? I have played both. Right. And what is your impressions of, of those? All three, Burning Empires, Mouse Guard and Burning Wheel, they're all different, completely different experiences. Right. Um, I've played um, Mouse Guard and Burning Empires, but not uh, but not Burning Wheel. And it on previous episodes I've um, we've discussed this where you know role playing games are on a spectrum beginning from the simulation end to the sort of the story game end and uh, everything in between and it strikes me that uh, the burning wheel is sort of more towards the middle perhaps more towards the sort of strategy end and then mouse guard is more sort of a, a story game is that your impression yeah like mouse guard is a little bit more open um, in the way that I think it'd be easier to teach someone, and then your burning wheel would be a little harder, and the burning empires is much harder. Yes, in, in the realm of um, kind of like how 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 much is going on in the game, right? And and the prep, and how much you have to read beforehand, right? So to, to understand what's going on. I mean, like, sure, you can sit down, and someone can teach you burning wheel, but sitting down and actually going back through the book then and learning it and learning all the parts and how it like works together it, it does take a little bit more time and effort to go back there right and so do you have a preference for that where you like your games to fit on that spectrum um it really depends on who i'm playing with and what what mood i'm in right. <laughs> like so- sometimes it's great to sit down and, and play fiasco with my game group and it's just fun and crazy and we know it's just going to turn out ridiculous Right. And then other times we want to play, you know, three or four sessions of something like Dungeon World, where it's going to be a little bit more um, serious. Sure, so. but the character development is still an important aspect of, of both games, whereas there are some games that the emphasis is more, like I say, on the simulation, you know, like you're, you're figuring out problems and your, your characters are really tools in a lot of uh, respects rather than being their own entities. Mm-hmm. Do, do you uh, like games at the the simulation end, like uh, Dungeons and Dragons or Rollmaster, say Twilight Two Thousand, that sort of thing? I, I I enjoy playing them, but I think I prefer more on the other end. Um. Sure. And 
although there are a lot of people of all ages playing all different uh, types of games, uh, in my experience, the, the, mo- the, the general path seems to go from those simulation, like Dungeons & Dragons type games, uh, through to the, the story game. There's no, there's no judgment call on whether that's good or bad, but I know for myself, my own arc in terms of enjoyment of games began with Dungeons & Dragons and Rollmaster and Middle-Earth and then... Uh, through you know storyteller and into indie games and and I'm sort of now at the the sort of indie game um, story game end of things rather than at the simulation. I still enjoy games from all across that spectrum, but I'm much more interested in the character development that goes on in the uh, in the story games end of the the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Is is that for how you found your progression? Uh, went or did you because you started relatively late did you and you've got the the podcast obviously where you experience a lot of different games you know you you jump around from game to game yeah like what happened was I I was playing that the D&D game and then playing some of the tabletop like with my friends and um, my boyfriend at the time who's now my husband and his friend George actually started up a podcast called Trapcast and I was actually on the Trapcast for two years before I started Genisodes Right. And so when I started that, we got a couple of fans right. <laughs> and, and one of them was like, one of them was Robert Bull right. and he was like, you have to come up to this convention. Um, we're going to play some games. It's going to be great. And he's the one who got me into all the indie stuff and playing shock social science fiction. And that opened a whole new world to me. So I had a quick, um, I guess, path from D and D directly to indie games. <laughs> right. Right. Within a matter of months, so I mean, it was, and then it, I, I got to explore all these other games. So it's my my journey has been very quick. <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, Zach from episode thirteen, and then Lenny in uh, episode sixteen. We were talking about this idea that um, there are sort of two different paths you can follow in role playing. Quite apart from the systems you enjoy, there are some people that find a game that they like and then they just stick with it. Um, and then there are those people who, for whom the hobby is all about just trying as many different things as they can and just trying out different games and doing short uh, sort of campaigns in each one and then moving on to the next one. Do you feel that uh, you're in the, the second category there or is it just sort of a, a flow-on effect of the type of podcast that you run? I think I'm, I'm, I'm more on the one where I'm playing a lot of different games because of um, just the situation I'm in with... Sure my game group um we we try to meet every week but sometimes we don't we don't want to play the same game sure or, or we'll do shorter arcs right. uh we did do like six months of, of warhammer fantasy right. so we, we we didn't have like one particular game that we wanted to stay with forever right. for like years like i know a lot of people can do dungeons and dragons for years which is yeah. amazing because i'm sure they take their character through all sorts of crazy stuff sure um, but then I also have all these conventions too that I like to go to that are, are close by that I'm really lucky to go to. So right. I get to play a whole bunch of games there too. So I'm just playing all sorts of stuff all the time. <laughs> right. Yeah, it sounds uh, a little bit, and this is not to be, um, this is not in a pejorative sense, but it sounds like you're in the uh, sort of the the teenage dating uh, phase of, uh, <laughs> of, role, of role-playing development because in previous episodes of sort of floated this idea of having a, a role-playing game soulmate you know the game that just fits you and that's the game that uh, you enjoy the most and you would you would play in preference to uh, all others for some people it is the first game they play you know the, the first love is endured but others it's been a, a progressive of 
progression of soulmates until they've they've really settled on something is out of the games that you have played uh, is there anything that you particularly um wish you could go back to but just it doesn't seem to work out that way because you're playing so many for for a long-term campaign i would love to do a burning wheel campaign right it, it just comes down to uh, it, it's not something my game group that we want to do at this point in time right so it's kind of like i don't have a group to do that with and then i don't have enough other time during the rest of the week there, there seems to need to be a day Right. Add it in somewhere in the middle between Thursday and Friday. Right. Like the rise day. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's gaming day. That'd so until nice. that happens, I, I don't know when <laughs> right. Burning Reel is going to happen. So. Right. Um, and I also, uh, when I was flicking through your uh, blog posts, I noticed that you'd recently discovered or perhaps rediscovered uh, Magic the Gathering. Yes, I didn't play before, so my husband plays. Right. And he was like, if you play Magic, then we can play together, and we can do all sorts of stuff. And I'm like, this is dangerous, because it's a collectible card game, and as me, being a girl, and, yes. and being myself, who right. I know that I love to collect games in general, um, this is going to be a bad thing. Right. So, <laughs> so have you got thousands of cards already? No, I, I've definitely limited myself now. Um, I, I went out in the beginning, I got a whole bunch, because I didn't have anything to start building all these different decks with. Right. Um, so now that I have my base and I'm starting to play more drafts and everything, and it's a lot more fun. I'm right. meeting with new people. Right. Um, I can sit down and be like, "Oh, I can make this deck. I already have. We have a bunch of these cards together." So, right. so if you started coveting mocks um, and uh, black lotuses, <laughs> no, <laughs> you, you, you're uh, you just refuse to uh, to entertain the notion of getting hold of one or. Um, you already you already have that, that. That would be a lot of money. <laughs> it is it is a lot of money, but when you're a grown up person, you know, like it's not it's not that much. This is much true. Money, right? I mean, it's just a card after all, but still, you know, it's yes. you know, just but it's, having, but but it's like an eight hundred dollar card, yeah, isn't it? Well, I'm so not sure what it's worth now. I know that it is uh, it is a lot. It is like eight hundred to like a thousand plus. Yeah, so I mean, like the all the all the the those nine cards are up there. Sure, but oh. wouldn't you like just the feeling of just like saying, I play my Black Lotus and then waiting <laughs> No? Yeah, but when you finally get to play that, you have to be in like Legacy and then <laughs> you need all the other cards. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I I played right from the very start and I had Mox and Mana Drain and, and you know, Time Walk and all those types of, you know, some of which have been banned and some of which are only available in, in Legacy. But in those days, uh, I liked the the simplicity of the game. I, I still like it, but it was more, back in those days, it was more like a a chess game in a way because mm-hmm. there were only so many moves that you could make. And so, you know, the strategy, um, I, I felt that the strategy was more um, clearly delineated. Like there weren't a million different things you needed to uh, consider. Not that that's necessarily a problem, but almost every type of deck that fought every other type of deck uh it would be a you know a relatively fair contest, whereas now because there's so much more specialization um, available, um, my impression is that it's a little harder to consistently get uh, even games. I'm sure that occurs at the um, you know at the cutting edge, but just for two people sitting down, you know, two totally mismatched uh, two totally mismatched decks might not necessarily be be fun. Mm-hmm. Have, have you played any legacy games to make that comparison? I have not played any legacy games. I've watched people play legacy games, but right. <laughs> I've watched them play like turn one, everything happens, and you're like, "What just happened?" Yeah. <laughs> like oh, in yeah. this card, does this and this, and flip, 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 and you're like, 
I lost. <laughs> Count of what? I didn't have a turn. Yeah, like a, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. The uh, the the channel fireball, a black lotus channel fireball uh, combo is the uh, is the one that I recall the the most as being killed with the uh, the most breathtakingly. I think it only happened a couple of times, but it was still pretty <laughs> like because oh, a friend of mine back in the old days when you used to buy the cards, they didn't used to be foil. Mm-hmm. Um, booster packs they used to be sort of plastic and they were vaguely see-through so he'd get to the shop as soon as they were available and then he'd like move the cards within the pack and you could actually read through the yeah, plastic yeah, yeah. to see what was, what was <laughs> in them so he had um he had three black lotuses and all the the mocks and all that type of stuff just because he really got around we lived in a relatively big uh big city but anyway Enough about magic, and perhaps to the uh, to the, the heart of the interview. I think most people have a pretty good idea of where you're coming from and, and where you're at now. So, what's your favourite book or supplement? And it doesn't necessarily have to be a game that you play currently. It's just something that you've looked at. Well, that's beautiful, um, and you keep going back to it. I think the the most beautiful book of just like the artwork. Oh, there's so many though. <laughs> sure, I, I just something that but, like, just resonates like something with you that, that that definitely resonates with me would be Mouse Guard for the artwork because I just love the little mice. <laughs> they are so kick ass and like they have swords, but they're cute. But they're not like really cute. They're like badass. So. Yeah. Well, my mouse but, got a cold, and that was, and I thought that's strange. My mouse has a cold, and he was lost uh, stats and stuff like like that. So I, I always find them a little bit uh, hard to take the mice seriously when they can be so knocked <laughs> down by a cold. But that's just me. Yeah, but I mean, just going back, like just seeing the book itself. Oh yeah, like no, I would want to pick it up, and oh, I yeah. would want to read it. Yeah, it's um, a nice shape and everything too, right? That's the, you know, it really feels like it's a, um, yeah. feels like it's something a little bit different, something special. Absolutely, yeah, it's a great game, and I really enjoy the the way that the that the quote unquote monsters work, work, you know, based upon the size, and I like the fact that they, you know, they're collaborative, and that's, you know, that's definitely something that um, is good to encourage in a in a game, and the fact that it's a little simpler than the than the Burning Wheel and the Burning Empires is also mm-hmm. good. Yeah, I, I do I do enjoy that game, but I just don't like it when my mouse gets a cold. <laughs> um, so if you could choose uh, one game or supplement to cease to exist, uh, what would it be? And it doesn't necessarily mean that you think that it's badly written um, or you've got anything against the author. It could just be because it's wronged you in some random way or it's, you know, like it just came along at a time in your life and you always make the association between it and something unpleasant. I, I don't think I would have any game that would cease to exist. I mean, I know that, that there are games that might be badly written, but there's always something within the game that sure. you could find that is really interesting or that you could learn from sure. or, or that as a designer you could be like oh that's a really cool mechanic but it's just not fitting right there right right not um, well implemented so i don't i don't think i would want something to cease to exist but uh there are a couple that probably need to go back and and be fixed a little bit maybe go back through the editing playtesting process sure well, the one that I have for that question is Traveller, and the reason why is because um, I, I'm not sure if you've listened to any of the previous uh, episodes, but um, I, the first game I played was Traveller, and I spent hours rolling up a character, and then the character died during character development, and so, <laughs> and so I was just totally gutted, and I, I, left, I didn't try another role-playing game for a couple of years subsequently, so yeah, it's not because I don't like Traveller, but uh, it's just because I don't like it's one of those bad bad things bad memory ones (laughs) absolutely yeah a lot of people on the show have have experienced bad memories um like their first experience with with role playing like they're hooked but you know something bad happens to them or to their uh to their character was your first experience outside of the play by mail because it's a little more user-friendly was it a pleasant experience 
Yeah. Yeah, I had, I had lots of fun. Um... Your character didn't, uh, nothing nasty befell your character on this first... Yeah, uh, this no, first no, no I think, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to remember that far back, and I'm like, yeah, I know. I mean, it, we did pretty good. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could... Actually, there is one character that we only got to play once that I always want to go back to. Right. Um, it was a paladin, and it, it's really silly, though. So I, I was a paladin, and I got a horse. That's what I, I was like, I want a horse. Right. So I got my horse and I named my person, my, my character Fork, and I named the horse Spoon. Right. So that when I was riding the horse and we were fighting together, we were known as Spork. Right. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> but then we all died against a bunch of, of um, what was it? It was like a bunch of bards, like fighting bards or something. Oh, how embarrassing. We had to fight against. And we like, were like, what? And it just happened that the GM was rolling really well. Right. Right. And we were not, right. and then we were dead. Right, so death to bards then. <laughs> yes. They, did, they, did they kill Spoon as well, or did he manage to uh, run away with the dish and the uh, the knife? I think I think he was able to run away because I wouldn't let them kill my horse. So <laughs> Fair enough. It's, it's rather strange that there seems to be such an aversion to, uh, generally speaking, to things happening to, uh, to quote-unquote, innocent uh, animals. Whereas, yeah. whereas innocent monsters are just, you know, like... Um, meal for the grist, or grist for the, the meal, I should say. Um, so, uh, are there any games or supplements that you're particularly looking forward to? I'm really looking forward to get my to getting my Sentinels of the Multiverse. Um, the Kickstarter just ended. Right. I've played it once, but now I get to have the new supplement that, that's out. Right, tell me about that. It's a card game where you are trying to to stop the bad guys and the bad guys can be really mean and you can actually like lose the game (laughs) a lot so i i I like that aspect that you can't always win right like there are times when you're just like shit we're gonna lose this game right this is not good um and is it a multiplayer um, yes it's it's multiplayer so you can have i think it's up it's like i want to say two to six players sure i'm not sure i've only played it the one time um, and I had um, Chris from Sentinels of the Multiverse on on my show, right. and we talked all about it. But it is it's it's such a fun game just to play, right. and the artwork's amazing. And the players are collaborative. Yes, you're working together to fight the bad guy, right? And, and all this other stuff is happening too, like within the environment. So now you're just all like kind of throwing cards down on your turn and trying to stop him. So it's not collectible in any way. It's a, it's a base set of cards from which the story yeah. is told. Yeah. Yeah. So and then there's two supplements out now, and I think they want to put out more supplements. And each supplement has new cards with new bad guys, and and all sorts of stuff. So the the Kickstarter is amazing. So there's all this extra stretch goal stuff. Sure. So I'm just waiting to get this extremely large package at my front door someday. <laughs> right. Um. And a lot of games now are being funded through Kickstarter. Um. And my understanding is that you're considering putting one of those together yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I've been working on my game project in Japan to Taco for the past year, year and a half. Right. And I am very close. To, I'm in the middle of putting together the video, so hopefully in a couple of weeks. That's, that is my game plan. Right. So, so how does Kickstarter actually work? Like, I understand the, the concept in as much as you put together a project and you set a goal for the amount of money that you require in order to better fund the project, then you go ahead and... and you know, put the project um, into action, but I'm a little bit fuzzy about what the re- the requirements are subsequent to that. Now, 
it's a donation. So people have no particular um, hold over whatever it is that you um, that you do with the with the money. But it strikes me that most role playing type kickstarters, there is actually a payoff at the back end. So you pay for your book in advance by funding the project. Is that basically how it works? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's it's. Um I just I just forgot the term, but it, it's an honor code. So, like, I mean, you, when you get the money, you're supposed to get the product, obviously. Sure. Um, and there's all those rules in Kickstarter that says, like, oh, the, the question's like, what if the person doesn't send me anything? And so, right. But um, that's a whole other thing. So what happens is that you put together your project. You really need to budget really well because, yes, you're, you might see a large profit, but that profit might be gone by the time you actually finish everything. So what happens is that Kickstarter gets 5%. Amazon, because that's who the payments go through, gets 5%. So right there, you're already losing some amount. Um, yes. You need to pay for your actual product. Not only that, to, to print the project, whatever you're doing, but it, it has to be sent to you. So that's shipping. And then you have to right. ship it to everybody. And, and a lot of people, a lot of projects, I mean, they say that you know, shipping is going to be X amount, but then you have international shipping. Yeah. Um, if you start getting more stretch goals, if you didn't add in that shipping, like you're just... It's just money. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff. It's a business, basically yeah. what it is. Sure. And yes, there might be money that you have extra left over. And that's like the dream, right? Sure. <laughs> to have something left over so that you can go and create another game. Or you can go then and go to conventions and that will pay to go to promote your game. Or right. you could use that to go and distribute your game. So it's, as a, as a game designer using Kickstarter, there's so many options of what you can do once you get your project funded. Right. And is the expectation that there won't be much lead time between your project getting funded and the people actually getting the stuff? Or no. are literally people like, okay, as soon as I get the money, that's when I break ground, so to speak? It's it, Every project's different. So I, I know a lot of projects, there are some projects who have been developing, their game is ready, they just need the money to print, and it goes directly to print right afterwards. I see. And then they do, you know... um they get their proofs and they say, okay, it's coming out and they ship it within like the next couple of months. Right. Um, I have a friend who did um, a Kickstarter with the demolished ones and it was a patronage project where they didn't start writing the game until they got funded. And then they started writing it because what was happening was that all the patrons, everybody who pledged a certain amount was getting to help with the game. So they write a chapter and they give it back to these patrons and only them. And so only they get to see it. And there's a forum set up. So then they get to to be part of the process. And then they're going to print it. Um, I, I, you have to be straight. The big thing is that you just have to be straightforward with everybody. You're saying, okay, I think this is, this is going to be in print. Um, you'll receive it around, like, August. And sometimes it does take longer because you can't stop the printer from taking too long. Or you, you can't help shipping or getting overseas and then it's going through customs. So... I think when you do a Kickstarter, it's kind of like Christmas because it's when you get it, it's like surprise. Right. <laughs> Here's the box at your front door. You got your Kickstarter project that you paid four months ago. Right. And but is I it think, quite oh, successful? Yeah, I think a lot of people. I think they enjoy you know supporting other people, supporting games, and then getting something. And when it gets there, it gets there. Right. Um, Okay, well, that's a good primer, at least, for uh, people that may be considering doing something similar themselves. I, I, although I was aware of, of Kickstarter, I, it's just one extra thing for, um, for me to do. And as it turned out, because my book is all period artwork and in the public domain, my actual costs 
were relatively small. Mm-hmm. I, I made an initial print run of a of a hundred books, um, and I mean they're just they're mostly gone now. But uh, it never sort of occurred to me to go ahead and see about uh, doing it uh, doing it via Kickstarter. But I'm not sure if you'd have any idea of this, but you may have. Um, what sort of proportion of projects get funded, and what's a successful way to go about getting a Kickstarter project funded? I don't know the percentage. I know there's a whole bunch of um, data out there, and I think the numbers up on Kickstarter, like they Kickstarter has actually gone through and and has like a whole presentation and stuff. So if you talk to them, they can tell you all sorts of data, like what type of project gets funded, how, but what pledge levels you need, um, how to be successful and stuff like that. Um, I think the for a game, like you. You have to be able to promote your project because if no one knows about it, how are they supposed to know to come to the Kickstarter? Right, that was my next question, yeah. To get it. Um, using social media, I mean, as a podcaster, you know, like if you don't go out there and, and find people to come and listen, how are they supposed to know it's out there? <laughs> oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, I mean, that's sort of a no brainer. It's almost uh, worthwhile developing a presence before you initiate your Kickstarter because you need, as you say, you know, people aren't just going to random. well, I suppose it could happen, but largely people aren't just going to randomly show up and say, here, have money, person I don't know anything about. Mm-hmm. They're more likely to, if you've developed a social presence, then, then get it up. But then a little bit, you know, without the experience, you know, you can't get the, you know, people are less likely to give money to an unknown quantity than to a known quantity, but without publishing something that people can measure, you know, your skill level, your ability to to actually deliver what it is that you're producing, it'd be hard to, you know, hard to get that money. And so, you know, it's a. Uh, do you think that most people have already produced something before they go to Kickstarter, or does Joe no, Blogs th- have the chance? I, I I think anybody can do it. I think the big thing is you have to look at the video, um, seeing the successful projects and what their video looks like. And you don't have to spend money on your video. I mean, you can use like an iMac and use the i video thing or whatever i movie right. um, or any other product but just putting it together in a thoughtful process um telling everybody what your product's about um you know what it what you get to do i mean if it's a game like what do you get to play um what the setting is i mean you don't want to spend your video can't be five minutes i'm going to be bored after 30 seconds so right. you got to like hook me in there's and if you are using f- like public art like put some of it up like yeah um it's it, it, you have to to ha- make sure it's edited because if there's typos or it doesn't sound right or the like sentences are just run on like I'm not going to keep reading this like sure. if it just goes ahead you know like if you're not even going to edit your Kickstarter how do I know you're gonna, not going to edit your book oh yeah for sure or yeah, like you, the- you know like if it's like uh, being professional and like I mean you can anybody can do it. Yeah, I mean, you need to make a good first impression, right? Particularly if you're asking for money sight unseen and maybe even as an anonymous person, you, know, you want to make sure you dot all your I's and cross all your T's. And, mm-hmm. and although you sort of get up, caught up in the excitement of, of doing it, you probably need to, you know, just, it's very difficult. I know I'm, myself, I'm an impatient person, but just taking <laughs> a little extra time to make sure you, instead of saying to yourself, you know, I really should get this done and then not because it takes extra time, just saying, look, you know, this could be the make or break. So just take that extra moment to make sure that it's right. So, so people can look for your Kickstarter in a couple of couple of weeks' time. They'll be able to find your particulars on your uh, blog and genocides.com. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be posted all over the place. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, 
If you could only be a player or a GM, which would you choose and why? I, I think I would like to be a player. Right. I, I, I just know too many other great GMs that I'm definitely not up to that level. Um, but I, I just love being a player. I, I just, I don't know. And, I love giving challenges to the GM and, they, and then the other players and then stuff happens. And right. then you figure it out. Sure. So. One of the um, things I've been trying to get to the bottom of, it seems to me that, roughly speaking, about one in three role players are women. But of those one in three role players that are women, it seems to me that the proportion of women role players that then go on to be GMs is not proportional in the same way that it is for men. So a, a female role player is, is rare, but a female GM is extremely rare. Do you have any ideas about why that might be? Um, <laughs> other, I mean, like, uh, the, the main ones, I mean, I could just think of would be, like, you know, they're, they, they don't enjoy it. Um, I think it takes someone pretty extraordinary to GM, either male or female. Right. Um, I mean, it's taking that extra step. It's the prep work. It's it's knowing the game, whichever game it is. And there's, I mean, I know you play a lot of indie stuff too. Um, there are games without GM, so I play a lot of those too. So you don't even get the chance to GM that, or you might be able to teach the game to someone. But um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the real reason why there aren't as many. Um, yeah, one of the um, responses I've had to that question is that sometimes. Uh, it's intimidating um, mm-hmm. because men, for the most part, um, are very drawn to particular details, you know, like baseball scores or, you know, the uh, socket sizes or, you know, de- like particulars, you know, very fine details. Mm-hmm. And women in general are more interested in the broad the broad strokes. And do you think that's an intimidation factor? Like, I, there's a book there and I need to know chapter and verse exactly what's going on i'm just not interested in that i just want to show up and and you know run my character and um have fun or um is that unfair i i don't i mean i I guess it depends who who it is because i think everybody's different like i i know a whole bunch of female gms who are amazing right Uh, but there can be an intimidation factor there i mean I mean, GMing a game is pretty intimidating. Everybody's looking towards you. You're supposed to put on this pretty much a show, or you know, oh, you're yeah. supposed to be able to 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 guide everyone through this, you know, through a fun time. Like you're like, I think a big thing would be like, oh my god, what if everybody hates this game? Like, will they hate me? Like, <laughs> sure, it, it's it's intimidating, but I think it's doable. <laughs> it's really not that bad. No, that's one of the things that. Um I've mentioned before because a lot of people, particularly us older types that have you know careers and, and children and so forth, it may well be that your four-hour role-playing session is the only sort of you time or me time as it may be that you actually get during a week. And mm-hmm. so if you're the GM, if you think about it too hard, that can be pretty intimidating. You're responsible for, you know, somebody, everybody shows up and they, say, and they sit down and they say, okay, fun, let's have it. Let's, I want my fun. Give me my fun. And they're responsible for making sure that uh, you have a good time. Now, I know that some systems encourage, um, you know, a lot of character involvement, games like, say, for example, Fiasco, uh, where there's really no GM at all. But 
somebody sitting down and waiting to be entertained, like a baby bird waiting for their food from their, <laughs> their mother, that can that can be intimidating. You think, you know, I've got to make sure that I do a good job of this because it's not just a matter of, you know, doing a good job. Somebody's only, maybe only social interaction and, you know, recreation time of the week is based upon how I perform. You know, do I want that, do I want that responsibility? So, so yeah, I can see, I can see that being part of it for sure. Yeah, and another thing, I mean, you just mentioned, you know, if you have a family and everything, and you, this is your only you time, you might not have the time to prep everything as a GM. Like, you might only get to be a player because you don't have the time to, you know, prepare something that you would want to prepare. Yeah, that's part of it too. And I think a little bit of that, though, comes to uh, whether you're a, a, a GM or not. My, my feeling is that most people have a gut reaction to which of those two they would want to be. And I think that if it doesn't come naturally to you after you've done it a couple of times or it doesn't feel comfortable to you, then you're in the sort of into the realm of one-for-one preparation time. If you've got a four-hour game ahead, then you need to prepare for four hours to feel like you're you're ready for it. And that's not really manageable, I mean, unless you've got no other responsibilities. Mm-hmm. But if you're a GM, you know, at heart, then you know you may find that you can do one hour or half an hour, or even no prep, no specific preparation at all before you go into the game because you just you've just got a feel for it. And I think mm-hmm. that in some respects, um, maybe being a GM is something that you can either do or you, you can't do. But I think everybody should at least should at least try it. And I also think the type of game can have a big impact on uh, you know whether you can or, or can't do it. If you want to, if you're at the story games end of things so pick a nice simple system and, and and use it for your story don't don't go for something that requires a lot of rule books unless you know memorizing rules and facts and figures is something that's actually interesting to you off the bat but um i guess then the next question is uh, going to be um will be short because uh do, do you do much gming i I mean, I've been running my game and everything, so that's what I've been mostly GMing. Sure. Um, so, so what sort of teaching to, you do? teaching to people. Um, there's not really too much prep because um, everything's really done at the table. Right. So I've been teaching. You know, like when everybody sits down, I, I'm telling them about the game and everything and all the rules. So I, I, that's kind of like GMing. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, being yeah. sort of the ran- the people wrangler is is part mm-hmm. of the GM's job. I was thinking more of a a, a, a game that re- sort of had a um, a more clearly delineated game master and players type type structure. Do you have any experience with preparing a, a game like that? Yeah, I mean, I've done. Um, I've gone to Burning Con the past couple of years, right? And when you go to Burning Con, you're, one of the requirements is that you are supposed to run a game in one of the slots. So you have to run Burning Wheel or one of the Burning Wheel headquarters games. Sure. Uh, so I mean, that, that's pretty. It's just a pretty daunting task because you now you either have to run Mouse Guard, Burning Wheel, Burning Empires, or Free Market. Right. So <laughs> that's yeah. It can be if, if none of those. All, all of all four of those games, which one do you pick? And you're like, crap. Um, it's especially with Burning Wheel. I, I mean, and probably you know, like just with D and D and all of those other games where there's a lot of rules and stuff. You have to have a basic understanding and being able to answer those questions or know how to come up with the solutions when the players ask those questions. And I think that's the hard part. Right. Um, so pre- just prepping, just reading the book and knowing the rules, and then you also have to come up with how the whole game's supposed to work. Now, when, at, when you go to Burning Con, it's a, little, it's a mini convention, so you have to also prepare the character sheets, right? And the characters and how they all interconnect in their beliefs, right? Um, but even just 
I think when when you're a GM and you're doing a, a a campaign and everybody's come up with the characters, I think that's a lot easier because you have all that extra input. Like, yes. what do your what do all the players actually want to do? Okay, you don't want to go to the castle. Fine, you want to go over here and to see the the wizard. Okay, I can do that. Yes, and and then you can use the time in between sessions to come up with things and, and yeah. it's not so bad when you <laughs> when you have no, all that yeah that's that's something that perhaps is not apparent um to somebody who hasn't done it before but there's a lot of information a lot of story available to you just by being familiar with your players characters they've got mm-hmm. so many story hooks and backgrounds and one of the things that i that i advocate in my book is you know first of all whatever you do don't just make the first session about character Generation. I mean, there's a lot to be said for doing a good job with character generation, but you at least the the analogy that I made is you know you don't go out and buy a Ferrari and then put it in a garage for a week. You know, you're super excited to have your Ferrari. You you take it out and you drive it. You don't just put it away and then wait for another day to to take it for a spin. And I, I liken that to making a character. If your people are coming along to the game and they're really excited about playing the game, don't make them make a character that they're really excited about and then not not let them use it. Um, mm-hmm. And and for two reasons. Um, first because uh, it's nice to just actually have a go and do something. But but second of all, by them having a chance to sort of test out the way that their character feels, then you get the opportunity to flesh out some of their motivations, some of their backgrounds, and start generating links between the players. Because that's really, um, if you want to get a game that all your players are, are invested in, uh, that's where the gold is, right? You want to take all those character backstories and interactions and... Um, you want to turn that as much as possible into the story that you tell, and so yes, yeah, so that would be my advice to a to a GM. I know I've probably said it before, but um, yeah, just take account of those players and use them. Take account of the um, characters and use it as a resource for telling your story. Don't think of it as something you just have to try to accommodate. You know, make it the story. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a couple games out there that that do that really well. Smallville is really good with that because it's a relationship map. So what you do during character creation is you're creating this map on how everybody's connected right. and everybody's getting a say in it. Right. And you kind of like start, you're like, okay, it's my turn. It's my character. Okay. I need to come up with someone. I draw my line and my connection to this guy because right. of that. And everybody's like, Oh my God. Right. Like your mom is like my dad. And you're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, it Doing the character creation is also awesome because oh, yeah. you get to pull on what everybody's saying and then when you get to use your characters. But um, with Smallville, then, you're using this um, character map then as the GM for the prep. Right. So you don't really need to prepare that too much. You don't have to prepare too much stuff. You just have to see which what the characters are doing at the time and how to, to play on these different relationships and really go after the heart of a relationship. If they have a really strong relationship with their mom, well, guess what? Their mom's going to backstab them next session. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And see what happens. So, I mean, like, there are games that do it really well where the, the prep is, is nice and easy in the way that, you know, you just go with the heartstrings. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, for sure. I mean, that's, and that's, that's all about investment, right? Like, if you want your players mm-hmm. to, to have a good time, then make sure that they're invested and, and involving their characters, whether it's part of the mechanic of, of creating the game or whether it's, you know, something that you consciously do yourself as, as a GM. I mean, I think, as I said, you know, that's where the goal is um, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, creating a memorable game. So what do you find is the perfect number of people to role-play? I think four. Four um, players or three in a GM? 
three in a GM, and then I mean, some games you need four players, um, but most of the time, like three players is a, is a good is a good place. Yeah, that's pretty common, I think, for the uh, for the sort of the narrative um, emphasis games, because yeah. if you don't have if you have too many people, you can't devote devote enough time to the mm-hmm. character development for each one, person. But if you've got more of a strategy or simulation type game, you can get away with a with a lot more uh, a lot more players at a time. Yeah, I've never played a game at a table. Well, I, I did um, Iron GM. There were six of us at a table on a GM. Right. But but I think it, when you get to those simulation type games, it's you have a lot more downtime because you're like, okay, what do you do? What do you do? And you're going around the table, mm. and you kind of have this downtime, um, which is fine. But it's it's not what I would rather be doing no, all the time. <laughs> sure. Oh yeah, I mean it's almost into board game territory then, right? Like you just got to wait for yeah. your uh, your turn to come around. Um, so how often do you role play, and for uh, how long? I try every week. <laughs> we, we, we meet up at game group every week. Um, it, it really depends on what we want to do. Like this past week, there was only three of us. So we're like, okay, well, I'm not really feeling like we want to play like a, 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 a RPG. So we decided to do a board game. So what board um, game did you play? Oh, what was it? I'm totally blanking on the name. It was this, it was this new card game. That my friend had, where you had crazy spells and you had cards and, and you had to create a spell and you're trying to kill the other other people. So you're a wizard who has amazing spells and sometimes they backfire and you just try to kill everybody else. Because as a wizard, you can resurrect yourself. So to show off how awesome you are, right. you just kill everybody. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, I'm not, from that description, I'm not able to, uh, to help you out, but it sounds like you... Uh Sounds like you had a, a good time, and I think that uh, in general, if you've got a that's the that's the only sort of weak link in having a game with three players, which is that if somebody's away, then it totally changes the dynamic. If you've got three players, you've got that interesting dynamic, but you don't get it with two. And mm-hmm. if you've only got a group with four people in it, three players and a GM, then if one person's away, then that's kind of everybody's uh, everybody's fun at the uh, at the same time, right? That's a and so you need to have a backup, right? Like you say, you had that, that card game, so so nothing was lost. But you know that's you know that's the downside of having just a few players, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know what it is. It was the epic spell wars of the battle wizards. There you go. The epic spell that's wars of the battle wizards. I found it. it. <laughs> and how long is a role playing session for you? Um, I mean, depending on the game, if it's if it's we're trying not to do a. a a one session thing, which so we'll like finish out a game like Fiasco takes like two two and a half hours. Right. Um, I would say about like three, three hours, and then if we get food. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's a big part of it. I think is you know as you get uh, older, and I'm showing my age again here, but you know that being as it's that that may be your only social interaction, or like having something to eat at the same time. You know, you build that into the to the lengths of the. Uh, of the session, right? Like we generally start yeah. around six six thirty and finish around about you know ten ten thirty, and of that that four hours four and a half hours you know the probably at least an hour of it is just um you know just like catching up time or eating something time and and then yeah three and a half hours of of role playing so yeah i think it varies sometimes we we will order food and then we'll watch glee so <laughs> and then we'll go world play for a couple hours <laughs> role playing and glee all right yeah. <laughs> um so do you think that um 
males should play females and vice versa. And you can take that either way, either like they should just for the experience or, um, you know, like is that something that, that people should be doing? I mean, I, I, I don't think there's a hard rule that they, they shouldn't play or they should play. Um, I think there's, there's, there's people that, that shouldn't play the other role. Like there's, there's males that probably shouldn't play females. Um, but I think it all depends on your game group. Cause I mean, everybody has to be comfortable with it. Right. I mean, there's, I mean, if, if everybody's cool with it and they aren't being dicks about, you know, stereotypes and everything, then, and they want to, to, to play a character and experience and take it through because it's a great character, then yeah, you can play whatever you want to play. I mean, there was times at game group where there, the GM was a guy and the three of us are, are girls. There's three girl players. Right. And we all ended up playing male characters just because of when we were talking about the game and we were coming up with it. And the, and the GM's like, so what's your name? And I'm like, I'm a guy. So I think I'm going to go with like George. Right. Awesome. And, and it was fun. And we were all comfortable with it. But I mean, I know there's ta- like when you sit down at a table at a convention, there are times that if a guy starts playing a female and he's just being rude and obnoxious and just playing the stereotypes and coming off like really bad, like that person shouldn't be playing a female character and vice versa. Right. Yeah. There's that whole, you know, being saucy and trying to have sex as, uh, as a teen in episode 14 put it, but you know, and, and I think you sort of alluded to that before, and that comes, I guess, from maturity and, and knowing your group. Mm-hmm. I think for a, for a well-established game group, it's, you know, that's, perfectly acceptable you know be whatever you want and you know that's all part of the fun of of role playing but it's when you get to that sort of convention setting that you uh that you not necessarily run into trouble there is the potential there for people to not be you know aware of those lines because in um you know a lot of games people do this you know to talk about you know lines and veils mm-hmm. and that's not the sort of thing where there's i mean i guess you could include that as part of your um your sort of convention game setup but I doubt that very many people have the time to spare for that. I was going to say that at a convention, that like what you're, is a GM thing that you're supposed to do is if someone starts going off the walls like that, you kind of call for a break and right. you pull them aside and you're like, look, this, you know, the way you're acting is, I mean, I, I don't know if you notice it or, you know, if you're just trying to be funny or something, but I don't think this is going along with what everybody else wants to do, but do you think you can tone it down? And if they say no, like, what? I can't believe you're, talking to me like this and then they leave the game then well you're better off because they've left the game but <laughs> sure. i mean you have to approach them in a way away from everybody else and say like hey you know this isn't cool like right. and even at the gaming table like maybe like uh, you know you're, you're playing up a character and you you're playing against a stereotype or something and you're trying to be funny and it just doesn't come off that way right you have to anybody player or gm has to step up and be like hey, you know, like, this is kind of uncomfortable. Like, do you mind, you know, maybe just turning it down? I mean, I, I understand that you might try to be doing it funny, but, it's you know, it's, just, <laughs> it's, 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 it's not. And um, Stop. maybe if you do it like this, then, you know, in sure. a different way, we could have a lot more fun. Yeah, so. <laughs> just think of all the fun we could have if you did it my way. Um, so, <laughs> so have you had any first-hand experience with that? Um. I, I've heard horror stories. Right. <laughs> it's never happened at a table that right. I've been at. Right. But I've gone to conventions where, like, someone's come out of a game and been like, oh, my God, I can't believe that just happened. 
Is that right? Yeah, I, yeah. I haven't. If there's anybody out there listening, or you, could, if you know of somebody that's my dog uh, shaking her ears, um, <laughs> if there's any, uh, like if you know of anybody that, that's had that experience firsthand and wants to uh, talk about it, I'd, I'd love to discuss it because part of you know promoting my game is um, running games at conventions, and I've run you know a lot of convention games with a lot of different people, and I've never even come close to that to that situation. So I'm wondering, I'd be really be interested to uh, to hear somebody's. Uh, horror story about about that. I don't necessarily want them to relive some painful experience, but I'd really like to know how that would how that would actually play out. I'm just mm-hmm. having trouble getting my head around it. Um, so, uh, do you or should GMs fudge dice rolls? I don't really use a GM screen, so <laughs> I mean, when I roll, I roll. Um, um, I, I don't think they should. Um, I mean, I know with D and D and everything that there is the GM screen, and like sometimes you, the, the GM really wants to like build up that, you know, um, everybody going, and 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 the the monster's gonna kill him, and right. then he just rolls like a one. He's like, shit. Right. <laughs> yeah, because there's always the possibility for the for the dice to deflate but, a scene, right? Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, it totally can deflate a scene. But I think you, as a as a GM and, and being a good GM. You have to be able to turn it around and describe it in a way that's pretty awesome. Like, okay, so you just rolled a, a two and the dragon's going to die. But maybe, like, spice it up so that you're still building up the characters doing awesome things. So right. I, I don't think you should fudge the rolls. You just have to find a way to spin it to, yeah. keep, the, to keep everything up and going and keep going. And sure, like, okay, so your big, great big dragon just died. Well, guess what? Now you have to come up with something else right. on the fly. Yes. Go. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I think that there's, uh, there's a lot to be said for that, for that idea. And, and allowing the dice to play their part is a, is a big part of it. You know, like if you're going mm-hmm. to um, continuously uh, discount the rolls of the dice, then you might just as well be, you know, telling a story. Yeah. And if you're not going to pay any attention to the dice roll, then maybe you, you shouldn't be rolling anyway. Um, yeah. But having having said that, one of the pieces of advice that I give in, in my book to to starting out GMs is, you know, while you're getting a, a handle on the way that it goes, unlike a board game where you have, uh, you know, very strict rules and, you know, people are relying on those rules in order to be able to compete successfully. In a role-playing game, it's a little bit different because unless you've got an adversarial GM, it's not really a contest. And to a degree, you have to trust that the GM has got, you know, your fun time um, in mind when they're doing whatever it is that they're doing behind that that mysterious screen. I think that if you are telling a story, and let's just uh, the example that I've used in the past has been, you know, you've being your group is being attacked by five ogres, um, and you slice them all up, then. You know, and then you add in three more ogres that come running along to help out with the battle. To me, that's the same sort of idea. You know, you're you're achieving, you're you're changing what it is that you have on the paper, um, in order to make the story more interesting. And do you think that the GM should have the leeway to do that? Like, do they have, you know, can as a player, is the fact that they've put the story together? Do they have a little bit of latitude to like? Do you? Is the trust implicit that they've got your best interests at heart and they're going to make a more interesting story with whatever it is they're doing back there? 
I, I, I think so. I mean, <laughs> as a player, I, I want my GM to, to test my character. Sure. I mean, I want to be able to, if I'm going to go all out and do all these crazy things, like, it's okay if I die. Sure. Uh, like, you know, don't hold back just because, <laughs> um, you know, you think that we should all live and, and live happily ever after. Sure. I'm not so much um, thinking about that type but, of an instance, but something occurs to you and then the dice just throw a spanner in what you th- discovered as a great story point. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that if they need to bring in more stuff, I mean, that's all up to them. They're, they're the ones who are coming up with the story. So, right. And they're, they're the ones who are coming up with the monsters. And if they can spin it in a way that makes it more awesome that I get to kill things. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Like, it, it, it's... The GM has everything in their hands, and that's what they get to play with right. in those types of games. So I think it's it's all up to them right. okay, to so make it work how they want it to. Yeah, yeah. Oh, for sure. So what's the best and or most inspiring role-playing game? Uh, and it doesn't necessarily mean that um, it's about role-playing. It just means something you watch and went, wow, that's really cool. I want to play a game where that happens or that character's in it. Hmm. I, I don't know if there's like like one thing that I would want to always play, or, or, or like or like a or like a a show or something that I would want to to pick and always want to play. No, no, no. It doesn't have to be something you would always play. It just means something that you have watched in the past and you went, "Wow, well, that's uh, okay. really cool. I want to play a role playing game that's like that." Ah, uh, well, I, I just went and saw the Avengers, right? And I was like, and I know that Marvel RPG is out. And I was like, I want to go play that right now and kick my friend's ass. <laughs> because it's like when you're watching Avengers, the whole movie is just player versus player, pretty much. Right. It's, it's like the main characters fighting each other. Right. I haven't, I haven't seen it, but mine. I won't tell is- you anymore, but it, it's pretty <laughs> awesome. You should go see it. It's like amazing fight scenes and it's like PvP all the way. Yeah, I think and that's... And you're like, I uh, want to do that. That is what I want to do in my game. <laughs> right, and I think that's, that's probably what I'm going to go see this weekend. Either that or um, Johnny Depp is a 200-year-old vampire. I'm not, not sure about that. Yeah. But um, but one of the things that I had heard about it is that it's uh, the kind of... Uh, there's a lot of character interaction, like ribbing each each other in terms of the, mm-hmm. the stereotypes about that. Is that uh, is there actually a bit of talking and, and character to and fro, or is it is it full on action? There's character conversation in there. <laughs> so I think I, I, when I when I left the theater, um, I, I tweeted. I was like, I want to play Marvel RPG. I want it to be just like this. Mm-hmm. And Cam Banks, the the writer of, and the game designer of Marvel RPG was like, that's exactly how it works. I'm like, I want you to play this game right now. <laughs> Good. So. so, who's your favorite villain and why? Oh, I think I have to go Disney here. <laughs> I have to go Maleficent because not only is she pretty evil, but she turns into a dragon. Right. That's that's pretty awesome. If if you could be a villain and turn yourself into a dragon, that's that's pretty pretty awesome <laughs> yeah i think that um there's something to be said for being able to to um transform yourself into a fire-breathing mythical monster but is there anything particularly about um her personality um some of the previous villains that 
people have uh, said they particularly enjoy um, fall into sort of a number of categories. Maybe you can put Maleficent into one of them. There's the there's Joker, who is a sort of chaos incarnate. He We're completely unable to identify with his motives. We can understand mm-hmm. them sort of intellectually, but we're not really capable of, of going along with them in any way, shape or form because they're completely alien to us. And then there is um, Hannibal Lecter, who you can empathise with in certain respects. I mean, obviously, he's an abhorrent character, but, you know, he's very polite, he's well-read, he's smart, all those sort of things that you can, to a degree, you can empathise with and you can admire. So you've got a villain which with qualities that you're able to um, to admire and, and, in some cases, respect. And then there's a, you know, just a, an out-and-out villain, say, for example, like Hans Gruber from... Um, Hans Gruber from... Die Hard, who you know wants to you know, retire on twenty percent, so he's got this cunning plan to get what it is that he wants, and then that's what he wants. He just wants the money, and you can easily identify with his with his motives. Which one of those three would Maleficent uh, fit into? I think she's kind of closer to Hans Gruber, but has a touch of that empathy part in there. Right. Um, yeah, she's just really mean and just just goes all out for it it doesn't care who gets hurt but right. I, I think with the whole disney thing you do have a little empathy for her but not really no sure. maybe sure. just a twinge right and that's and that's sort of like the the fourth type of villain that um that that i sort of identified over over the weeks which is um lex luther and lex luther is only a villain because the stories are written through the eyes of superman mm-hmm and so, in that respect, it's it's very easy to to sympathise with the villain um, because they're not really a villain at all. You know, you've got um, just another character with with motives and goals that are in, in opposition to you. And mm-hmm. sort of the the purpose of the question um, really sort of gets at this idea that I discussed in my my book that you know when you're, if you're putting a story together, then I mean, unless you're a completely free form. GM, you want to take a careful look at the the motivations of the players, but having an end of your story in mind, you may not necessarily ever get there, but it's much easier to take a journey if you've got a destination in mind. So that's sort of the first thing. So just just rough something like that that out where you know you've got an idea of of where you're going. You've got the players right here, and they've got their motivations, and you've got your end right here. And now try and find some interesting lines that can go between where the players are and what they want and the end of the game. But then the second thing. Um, to do after that is to think about your your villain. If you're going to have a villain in your story that's not like a like a force of nature, you know, like a volcano or an earthquake or something like that, then if you get an idea about your villain and think about what their motivations are, and then find ways to bang those motivations up against the motivations of your character, then that'll help to that'll help to develop your um, help to develop your plot. Uh, do you think there's anything that's uh, do you think that Maleficent would make a good role-playing um, villain to use in that way? I think so. I think you could, could play her up and, and find some extra stuff that um, that she wants to go and, and get. Because, right, I, mean, I mean, in the movies, she's definitely going for one thing. She wants uh, Sleeping Beauty to be dead. <laughs> um, he doesn't, right? Yeah. A child, a, a, a character that perfect. I mean, you've got to kind of 
want to mess it up somehow, right? Like seeing the perfect white wedding case or the perfect perfect white wedding dress and having a, a pitcher of ink or something like that and or wanting to just knock the cake over and see what happens, you know, that that sort of idea, which I guess is a little bit jokerish. Maybe I'm exposing some of my stuff. <laughs> um, so if you could become a character in a role-playing game, what would it be? And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to, you know, just choose your favorite game and then roll up a character. I mean, like, suddenly, Jen is a character in a role-playing game. It could be somebody specific in a specific setting, or it could be just a type of character in a, in a type of game. Hmm. I could become a character. Well, I, w- I would want to be... Um a magic person. Right. That's like my go-to thing. Like I love if it's like D&D or Pathfinder or any game that has like a magic user. Right. I would want to be a magic user. Right. You Preferably be a con- sorcerer. Right. So. You wouldn't be concerned about low hit points? Some of the uh, some pleb knocking you off in the first I would, I would hope if I was going to become a character in a role playing game I would at least be maybe like level 3 or something <laughs> I'm not sure if I can allow that I think you have okay, to okay so uh, we're going to go level 1 <laughs> no, not, no not, not necessarily no I think that uh, you can be whatever you want it's it's, imaginary, it's imagination world but a lot of people like the idea of being able to um, like the idea of being able to do to do magic I guess it's because it's something that's completely completely foreign to us so mm-hmm. you're, you're in good company there so <laughs> Do you have any dice superstitions? If my dice aren't rolling very well, I'll change them up. Like I definitely come prepared with a whole big bag of little dice, and they're and they're specially chosen. Like, are only the best yet to make the dice bag. So, I mean, they have to be like like sparkly or have the cute like by my panda one. I have these these critty dice from from D twenty Monkey who are amazing, they're cute little kitties. Um, so it. it Depending on what I'm rolling and how many I'm rolling, of which size and everything, I, I like match them up and everything. So, so initially, the making the dice bag is purely aesthetic. Yes. So, yes. as you change your dice, if they roll low, are you at all concerned that perhaps you're missing out on the opportunity to take advantage of the second half of the game, where they're only going to roll high, so that it all evens out, or a dice not like that? It all really depends on how they're rolling. Cause sometimes they roll really well, and then one just like flops out. So then I got to trade it out. Um, and if they all start rolling bad, I don't know. It, it's it's like a you're just screwed, I guess. <laughs> is, is the GM I, allowed to touch your dice? They usually have their own. So I mean, there there are games where like we're all using this uh, same pile of dice, right? But um. Do you mean like going and like picking up my dice and rolling it for me, or? No, no, no. I mean, like, uh, let's just say, for example, there was a GM um, at a convention, and they, for whatever reason, had somehow managed to misplace their dice, and then they were to reach over and say, for example, grab your dice and then make a roll with them. Would would that be okay, or would they need to go away in the dice bag? Oh, I think they'd have to go in the dice bag because, like, these are the dice that I'm using. Right. And if they need dice, like, if if if, because in the if a GM forgets their dice, they usually say, oh, well, I need some D6s. And you're like, okay, well, here. And you pull out some D6s to give them. The ones you are relegated for rolling low in the past, perhaps? That, that is also true. You could, you <laughs> give them, but they are not taking the dice that are in front of you that you've specifically chosen to play this game with. Right. Now, if you have to share your dice because you only have like one set at the table because everybody's forgotten them, right? then... I don't know. Maybe Anarchy. you just wash your hands and use some like 
big lotion afterwards. <laughs> so you need, to, you need to put your dice in that, uh, what that Purell stuff is. And- yeah, yeah, yeah. You get Purell, you just wash the dice afterwards. That's right. Some sort of a ritual, perhaps? <laughs> yeah. So what's your role-playing uh, elevator pitch and your go-to example of play if you use one? Like if I want to get people to play? Yeah, so somebody says, or- hey, Jen, what are you doing this evening? And you say, well, it's Thur Friday or whatever the name of the day was. <laughs> um, I'm going to go role-playing on my magical day. And they say, role-playing, what's that? Oh, and by the way, what's Thur Friday? What are you talking about? <laughs> well, if it's to someone who has never, ever heard of role-playing games, yes. you usually start off with have you heard of Dungeons and Dragons? And when they look at you with the face of they have no idea what the heck you're talking about, you're screwed because you have nothing to go on. Right, right. You're like, well, okay, so um, do you know board games, right? And then you're going to, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, I know board games. Well, it's kind of like that, but you know, you're going to roll dice and you, you make up your characters and you get to go on adventures. And they look at you again and you're like, have you ever played a video game? And they're like, yeah, yeah, is it, is it like that? And you're like, kind of like that. <laughs> kind of, I, I suppose, but that stage you that, feel That's like actually you're... happened to me. I was actually in an elevator. This happened. I was at a convention, and this woman walked on, and she's like, and we were all like sitting in the elevator, and she looks at us, and she's like, what's going on? Is there like right. a convention or something? Right. And I'm like, yeah, it's a gaming convention. She's like, what's that? I'm like, have you ever heard of Dungeons & Dragons? And right. she's like, no. And I'm like... <laughs> I'm getting off what the elevator now. Yeah, that's right, so it yeah. actually happened. The, my floor opened, and I'm like, "You guys take it." Right, <laughs> right, good. good. So you actually had an opportunity to make an elevator pitch, and uh, it didn't go over very well. Did, well I'm sure somebody else will have, will have taken the uh, will have taken it up for you there. Yeah, I, a few weeks ago there was a because when you said uh, you know, do you know Dungeons and Dragons? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they say yes, then you're in luck. There was an article in the New York Times. Um, written by a chap about the Game of Thrones. And in, are you familiar with this article at all? Um, I might be. I don't think I am. I didn't read it. Okay. The uh, Well, the reason that, that I read I don't read the New York Times, um, but this article had come up because he wrote a pretty scathing review of, of Game of Thrones for one reason or other. And one of, the main, one of his main points was that uh, there should be one main character and then maybe people could follow it. Um, and he said that the game probably appealed to, and this is the bit that caught my attention, was... Um, Appeals to Dungeons and Dragons types is the only people that are interested in this this film. Now, I don't think that our you know like our hobby is big enough to you know support a miniseries on a, a major network like that. But um, quite apart from that, there was you know it was a certain it's it, the feeling it was it felt like it was a bit pejorative um, Dungeons and Dragons types. And the one thing that that I, the extra thing that I was thinking about that was that with Using a phrase like Dungeons and Dragons types, it implies that his readership is familiar with what a Dungeons and Dragons type might be. Um, mm-hmm. Have you had much experience with um, negative stereotypes in Dungeons and Dragons? Not so much negative stereotypes, but it's hard to explain to someone who doesn't even know what gaming is and, and trying to get them to a vantage point where where they can understand what I'm doing without being able to show them. Like, if I don't have a book in front of me to show them what a role-playing game is, describing it, like, I'm just trying to... You end up trying to pull things out of the air, and Dungeons & Dragons is a go-to example, just because so many people have played it or or might know of it. Right. Um, 
it's but I've never had like a negative thing against it or, or something come up where they're like, oh, you played that. Right. Yeah, that's the uh, that's the thing. I think it's perhaps people of a of a certain age because I know that when it first came out, and perhaps you know your parents might have mentioned this, but when it when it first came out, there was a lot of it caught quite a lot of uh, negative press, and there was mm-hmm. a group called before there was such a thing as Mad Mothers Against Drunk Driving. There was Mad, which was Mothers Against Dungeons and Dragons, um, and there was a sixty minutes um, documentary where it was pretty um, it was very biased, and it was. It made me subsequently uh, think about uh, 60 Minutes in quite an unflattering way because it was very poorly researched and very, Mm -hmm. very biased. But um, I think there are a lot of people of that age which got a a very um, skewed view of what Dungeons & Dragons was. And it's almost like this, uh, you know, you've got the Westboro Baptists who um, hate hate everybody and they're very very small but vocal minority and I got that feeling about um, Dungeons and Dragons and, and people like the the woman whose son uh, committed suicide I think and, and she latched onto Dungeons and Dragons as being responsible for it but it created a negative stereotype amongst people of of a certain age and although I haven't experienced it directly I know that uh, Jen Dixon uh, episode 17 um was saying how she was a part of the Baptist church when she grew up and she experienced a lot of um, preaching um, about how Dungeons and Dragons was going to, you know, undermine society and undermine, you know, her her chances of getting into into to heaven and so forth, the work of the devil, not to put too fine a point on it. Have, have you experienced any of that even secondhand? Not really. I mean, I like, look, you know, John Jackson was talking about it. Like I would hear it from other people, like in that, in that, um, respect, but I was thinking more sort of perhaps not, parents might have might have mentioned. Yeah, no, it. no, no one's ever like really talked about that. I mean, most of the stuff that you know, if I ever hear about that kind of example or anything, it's mostly from a story that you know happened to someone else. Um, right. But no one that I know um, personally. Okay, so here's a chance for you to uh, put all of your previous answers together and make a broad and confident statement about (laughs) role-playing in general. Totaling 100%, uh, allocate some to system, GM, and players in terms of relative importance. Um, I think 50% is going to go to players because most of it, 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 it's all about the players. They're the ones who are helping create the game. Um, And then I think... 40% 40% goes to GMs because they do a lot of stuff. They're keeping the game going. But then 10% is the system because no matter what you're playing and no matter who your GM is, I mean, the system's the system and you can do anything. But it, it, it's all about the people who are playing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, Jennifer Steen. That's it for episode 20 of Penny Red. For any questions or comments arising from the episode, Daniel at hazardgaming.com. Signed and numbered copies of Victoria can be found at hazardgaming.com by clicking the Buy Victoria link. On that page, you'll also find links to a print-on-demand version of Victoria, which can be purchased through Lulu. PDF versions of Victoria can be found at DriveThruRPG or RPGNow.com, as well as through the Hazard Gaming site. 
But for the listeners of Penny Red, I've got a special available to purchase the PDF of Victoria. If you scroll down on the Buy Victoria page below the image on the cover of the book until you're across from the field for entering your email address to purchase the PDF, you'll find a secret link. Click that secret link and you'll find yourself on a page where you can purchase Victoria for just $6.99. You'll also find a series of other links available there for other resources associated with the game. Anyway, thanks for listening to the show. Next week's guest is Kristen Hayworth, one of the hosts of Bad Wrong Fun. So until then, keep talking the walk.